Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Aaron, we're losing 100 yards of land every 100 minutes. A football field every 100 minutes. One yard a minute. So imagine what you're standing on. It's gone in a minute down there in the delta. That's exactly right. And it's going fast. It's the greatest land in this country. I mean, it's the most fertile, the most uh, uh, game-rich and fish-rich land in our nation. But what's the good news? You have good news. Well, the good news is there's a plan and there's a man who's on the show today who is in charge of this plan. Um, it's Brent Haas. He works. He is the executive director for the Louisiana Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority. And they're the guys who actually oversee all the restoration work going on down there, including the new Mid-Baratarius Sediment Diversion, which just broke ground, the biggest restoration project in U.S. history. And I love this because not only do I keep learning more and love how much I, I already appreciate it without knowing it well, the Delta, but also because the state government itself has actually invested in having this entity that takes care of restoring its land. That's pretty cool. Maybe a model for other places. Anywhere could use it. Amen. Well, I think folks are going to enjoy this. We've talked about some of the work Bill's doing and this largest restoration project in the history of our country, maybe beyond the actual uh, opportunity to add more land back to, to a place. You don't get that opportunity very often. And not to mention it's in one of the most ecological, rich hunter, fisherman paradise in the whole country. So check this one out, Bren Haas. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. What's up, everybody? Aaron Kindle here. Back for another exciting episode, exciting topic with my podcast <laughs> co-host, Bill Cooksey. What's happening today, my man? 
Hey, Aaron, glad to be here. We just had our first cold front of fall, so uh, uh, the guys down south are looking forward to teal. I'm looking forward to a cool morning in the squirrel woods tomorrow. Yes, sir. I love it. This is my, we call it the most wonderful time of the year. In fact, me and my kid were uh, going to dub in the words, you know, take the most wonderful time of the year Christmas song and make up hunting <laughs> lyrics for it. We haven't quite done that yet. When we do, we'll get that out. But uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a it's a great time. We had some snow on the peaks this morning and it rained really good last night. So boy, we're getting the itch for, for the fall. But uh, we have a awesome guest today and, and we get to dive into more of your work, Bill, and the, the awesome work happening in the Delta. Why don't you just uh, give us an intro of what we're talking about today. We've previewed it a little bit on a couple of other podcasts. Now we get to really dive in. Right. This is what I'm excited about. Um, I ran into our guest. I fished with him last year. Then I ran into him at a DU banquet oh, about three weeks ago. And there he was talking about duck hunting and all in the midst of the Mid-Barataria groundbreaking that we've mentioned on the show before. And I thought, oh, my God, we have got to have Bren Haas. He's the executive director of CPRA in Louisiana, which is the Coastal Protection and restoration authority and they run restoration louisiana that's who we kind of take our lead from and what we advocate for and bren welcome to the show and thanks for being here bill and aaron we really appreciate being on with you here today looking forward to our discussion thanks for being here but we want we normally kick off the show by talking about what we've been doing outside and uh um I haven't been doing a heck of a lot other than a little bit of squirrel hunting and haven't even kicked off fishing yet because it's been sublime hot. But uh, Aaron, how about you? Y'all are in prime time out west. Not even sitting on the porch with a, you know, a nice lemonade with maybe some help in it or anything. You haven't been doing that? <laughs> a little bit of that. A little bit of that. Watching the hummingbirds. They're thick right now. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I've been, I've been out a few days uh, archery elk hunting with my kid. It's been a Real tough start to the season between the full moon being the brightest full moon of the entire year to kick off the season and some really hot temperatures. Luckily now this week we're getting some some rain and some snow on the peaks. But boy, those first couple of days, whew, it was uh, – I live at 7,000 feet and it was 80 – plus 85 degrees those first few days. So up where we were hunting in the 70s really hot, you know, not, not a lot of reasons between the full moon and the heat for the elk to be moving around very often in the day. So anyway, just enjoying it and keep getting a lot of miles. This is usually I get in about the best shape of the whole year right about now. So, right so now. feeling good, <laughs> feeling strong. So Brent, how about you? You've been getting any time outside. You, you get to take care of all these places and fix them up. Hopefully you get to spend some time in them. Well, I do get to spend a little time uh, there. Of course, uh, it's been a long, hot summer here in Louisiana, but uh, that hasn't stopped us from doing a little fishing over the summer. And I, I spent last weekend uh, actually uh, out of state. Uh, my brother-in-law's got a real nice place in central Alabama, and we were uh, working uh, all weekend, moving deer stands, making sure things were tidy and, and ready for the, uh, for the upcoming uh, fall seasons. When does yours start? Is that November 1 or so? Uh, archery season will start in Louisiana October 1st. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So on the doorstep. It, yep. It, we're getting close. It, getting it tends close. to start early. The farther south you go, it starts getting earlier again, which always seems strange to me. Huh. I did not know that. Uh, of yeah, course, we're, uh, we're looking forward to teal season, which opens here in Louisiana uh, this weekend. So um, everybody's getting excited about that. 
that's our, our mutual friend Ryan Lambert called me earlier today, and he was all excited about this cold front on the way and already had some teal and is getting more. So hopefully you're going to be able to get out and get after him. Yeah, I think if you have water, uh, you're gonna you're gonna do well. Uh, there's been a, a real lack of water, unfortunately, though, in most of South, most of Louisiana, including South Louisiana, and uh, so it's gonna be tough for a lot of folks. But I think if you're lucky enough to have some water, you're gonna have a, a good season this year. Good deal. Well, let, let's start off with some of the the heavier stuff, um, and, and then we'll get back to hunting and fishing. Um, just to kick it off for people other places, what exactly is CPRA? Yeah, so we are a relatively new entity within the state of Louisiana. We're part of the state government that uh, was formed really on the heels of Hurricanes Katrina and Rita back in 2000, that that hit the state of Louisiana back in 2005. I think most uh, folks hopefully remember certainly Hurricane Katrina, which hit the southeastern portion of the state. Hurricane Rita, uh, just about a month later, hit uh, the southwestern portion of the state and had similar devastating effects in in that region. And so... You know, it was really a wake-up moment, I think, for the state of Louisiana when we realized that we, we had entities that were dealing with kind of ecosystem restoration and marsh restoration and that kind of thing, and another entity dealing with hurricane risk reduction. And it really became apparent that the two things needed to work hand in glove. Uh, one um, relies on the other. Without our natural ecosystem, without our, our coastal wetlands and all of the features that exist along our coast, bare islands, ridges, uh, oyster reefs, you name it, um, our our communities and the systems that protect those communities, our levees and floodgates and so forth, are much, much more vulnerable. Um, and so we were really stood up to integrate the, the planning and the, and the future of coastal Louisiana uh, and integrate those two things, uh, you know, with each other. And so um, since about 2007, uh, 2006, 2007 timeframe, we've done that uh, through de- the development of a, a coastal master plan and putting an awful lot of investment, an awful lot of projects on the ground here in coastal Louisiana. Well, and what is it you do at CPRA? <laughs> well, I am the uh, I have uh, served, as you mentioned, as the executive director um, for uh, several years now at CPRA. And so really uh, in, in that role, I uh, have been in charge of, of running the, the whole organization. So uh, we plan, as I mentioned, we design, uh, we implement and then we operate and maintain uh, all of those projects across coastal Louisiana. It's been about 150, 160 projects or so in the last 15 years that have been implemented. We've got another, uh, you know, 70 or 80 on tap that we're looking forward to implementing over the next number of years. And uh, so a lot of work, as you might imagine, goes into, again, kind of conceptualizing those, uh, prioritizing those, uh, and then uh, begin to plan and and design and engineer those and actually get them constructed. Some of those are pretty good sized projects that you're, you're pushing on right now, aren't they? They, they are. We, uh, you know, so, so historically a, a large project in the state of Louisiana would be, a, you know, multiple kind of hundred million dollar uh, size of a project uh, and, and, you know, building thousands, literally thousands of acres of, of marsh. We, uh, you know, as you know, Bill, and, and, and I know uh, both of you know that uh, we just broke ground on the mid Sediment Diversion Project, which is, um, you know, pushing a $3 billion price tag and can, you know, has the potential of really resetting and being a transformative uh, project for the Barataria Bay estuary. Uh, that's tremendously important for lots of reasons that I know we'll get into. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's again, on the order of billions of dollars and, and we'll create, we, we think, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 30,000 acres over a 50-year period. That's a, I guess Mark Twain was wrong back, back when he said they aren't making anymore, right? 
<laughs> well, we are, we are in Louisiana. Absolutely. It's one of the few, of course, we're losing a lot of land as well. That's why we're, we're having this discussion. But, uh, but we are, uh, uh, we, we have one thing in Louisiana that a lot of the other states that have uh, similar issues don't, and that's uh, the Mississippi River and the power of that river that, that built literally the land I'm sitting on here today. Um, and, and almost all of coastal Louisiana uh, is still there. It's still a powerful tool that's been severed essentially from its coastal ecosystem. And if we can reconnect it, uh, we think we can do a lot of good. And that's what we're, uh, we're aiming to do with the Mid-Veritary Sediment Diversion. Amen. Well, th- there's something in common with just about everyone we have on the show, and it's certainly the case here. Uh, and, and I think this is great for people to hear, uh, folks in positions like yours, who are just like us, they hunt and fish. So let, let's talk about your background. I mean, how did, yeah. where did you start out? How did you start off hunting and fishing? And that's before we start talking SEC football and the kind of conflicts you must have <laughs> just even in your, your own mind. But yeah, yeah, no, I, uh, I mean, that's, it's very appropriate that we discuss that because quite honestly, that's, that's why I am where I am today and why I'm doing what I'm doing today. I'm, I'm born and raised in, in, uh, Baton Rouge, uh, born here, grew up here in Baton Rouge. And, and while we're not directly on the coast, uh, we're very close to, uh, all parts of the state within, you know, maximum two and a half, three hour drive, kind of in the farthest reaches, uh, to get to, to some of the, uh, better locales for hunting and fishing and whatnot. And so I um, was fortunate to have a father that uh, uh, liked to fish in particular and hunt as well. And uh, obviously brought me up doing that uh, with him and uh, just uh, developed a passion for it as I got into got into high school and, and college. And, and then once I was in grad school, I've, you know, hunted and fished from, I, I tell people from Hopedale on the eastern portion of the state to Holly Beach on the western portion of the state and just about uh, all parts in between. So um, those experiences as a, as a child and then, you know, as I began to grow early, older and you know, recognizing many of the changes that, that just I was seeing in, in along our coast uh, in my lifetime. And, and so many people have said this, folks that, that fish and hunt in coastal Louisiana, um, you know, might have a, an islander, for example, that they fish uh, and then they come back the next year and it's simply gone. And so I was seeing those kinds of changes along our coast and just the recreational activities that I was partaking in, right, right uh, hunting and fishing along the coast. And so it really made me want to become uh, a part of the solution, uh, recognizing that that was a big issue. Uh, those things are really important to me, wildlife and fish. Um, I want to be able to enjoy them. I want my children and family to be able to enjoy them. And, uh, you know, it was plain to me that if we don't do something uh, about it, then uh, that was in jeopardy for the future um, of not just my family, but future generations of uh, residents of Louisiana. Brent, you know, if I, if I was sitting next to you, I'd pat you on the back because a couple of different things. One, you're doing this work that we've just got to have that I just love hearing about. Restoration to me is, I don't know, it feels like the pinnacle of conservation work in a lot of ways, right? Like you take land that has little or sometimes even almost zero value. I mean, if you're talking about reclaimed mines or some of these other things, brownfields, and you put any kind of ecological value back in them, you're you're going from zero to whatever you did. And in your case, not just taking land that's beat up, but actually making land. And, you know, you've got redfish and ducks and all the cool things that are happening there. So first of all, I just commend you, but, you know, obviously your background brought you here. Just talk a little bit about the resources in Louisiana and, you know, why they're important and, you know, why we need this kind of work that you're doing. 
Yeah, well, so, you know, Louisiana, um, because of the Mississippi River in particular, but but all of coastal Louisiana is um, is just about as productive as you can get in terms of wildlife habitat. Um paradise, yeah. It's right on your license plate. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's why we are sportsman's paradise. I mean, you've got the power um, uh, of the Mississippi River coming along, you know, into our coast. It supports and it's just pumping energy into our coast, right? So you've got you've got that and then you've got the productive Gulf of Mexico from the south kind of working its way north and where those two things meet just produces this um, this unique situation where you've got kind of the best of both worlds. Um, and so, I mean, redfish, speckled trout, flounder, uh, any kind of waterfowl you might want to mention. Um, if you're not into hunting or fishing, neotropical mig- migrant birds, all other kind of colonial nested water birds, uh, you know, alligators, fur bearers, um, you name it. Um, it's here in coastal Louisiana and it's not just here, it's thriving. Um, and it's thriving again because of the energy and the productivity of this system. That's not, uh, the Gulf of Mexico, and it's not just uh, you know a freshwater reservoir somewhere in Middle America. It's it's a combination of those two two things that makes this place so productive and so unique. Well, I, you know, we're talking about sportsmen within Louisiana, but one of the first things I did seven years ago, we did a fly into D.C. and I was going to go talk to Lamar Alexander for Tennessee as mm-hmm. a Tennessean. And I called a few different businesses. One of them was Triton Boats and to try to get them to write a letter. And they, they said, heck, yeah, I'll write a letter. Last year, that the year before that, within the state of Tennessee, they sold over 100 bay boats, center console bay boats, to people who were fishing south Louisiana but lived in Tennessee. There were that many people at that point going down there to fish on their own, much less going down to fish out of those camps and all. And that's over, I think, at the time, over $7 million worth of boats just sold in Tennessee wow. because of what's going on in Louisiana. <laughs> so those impacts are huge all over the country. That, yeah, so for several years, uh, a group of friends of, of mine and I and my father as well uh, would teal hunt in Venice. And there was a crew that would stay in a, a camp next to us that would come down every year from Kentucky. Uh, just as you're describing. And uh, they were there for four or five years in a row, um, uh, both fishing and, and hunting. So, yeah, folks come from all over the country. And let's talk a little, Brent. I, I want to make sure we say this, too, before we – the estuaries, the the delta itself. I mean, when I read about that, when I learn about that, the kind of richness, the vitality, the – you mentioned some of the critters, but – Really, a lot of this work, the Delta has been, you know, impacted so heavily and it's so valuable. Maybe you can just, before we start diving into what this big problem is, just the value of these estuaries and why they're so important, you know, to duck hunters, to fishermen. You you mentioned some of the other values there too, the neotropical birds and so on, but just maybe fill that up a little because I think you can't overstate how much is going on there. Yeah, I mean, I, so again, I think uh, the Gulf Coast, not just in Louisiana, but including Texas, has been identified as one of the most critical, um, uh, you know, or the most critical overwintering habitat for waterfowl, for example, in North America. Um, so if you're a, a Canadian or if you're a Midwesterner uh, and you enjoy, uh, you know, seeing ducks or hunting ducks, um, coastal Louisiana is important to you. Um, just as, you know, our parts, uh, even further South, but, uh, w- without the, 
the resources. And I'm going to go back to that that term energy. I guess without the energy that that is available here in this ecosystem to uh, to sustain those waterfowl and all those those other species that I mentioned earlier, um, you're not going to have uh, you know robust populations in the in the duck factory in North Dakota and South Dakota and in Southern Canada and so forth. So um, it's just a tremendously important. Um, region and by the way it's not it's not just about wildlife right or fish um when you think about the transportation system in the united states uh if without the landscape around the mouth of mississippi river which is the coastal louisiana that's what we're talking about here um you know uh, a farmer in iowa trying to get soybeans or grain to market uh or some other grain to market uh is is not going to be uh doing very well and so uh, energy production, again, food production in terms of fisheries, transportation, you name it, um, the landscape in coastal Louisiana and the communities of coastal Louisiana are, uh, are supporting those things. Yeah, without, without a clear Mississippi River, uh, economically, the U.S. is in trouble in a hurry. Uh, the amount of just stuff that goes up and down that river is just incredible. Yeah. Uh, Bren, right now, Exactly how bad is the problem down there? I mean, some great things have happened. Y'all have got a lot of stuff on the ground that's helping, but we're still losing, right? We are. May I jump in there just a little bit, Brent? Just maybe for the people who don't understand it as well, maybe just kind of start from scratch of like, what are we talking about here? Yeah, well, you're talking about the the entire landscape essentially south of of Interstate 10 uh, from the Mississippi border to to the Texas border. It includes about half the population of Louisiana. It's about 2 million people live in this region. Um, obviously, the biggest concentration there would be in the city of New Orleans, uh, which is very much a, a coastal city. But you've got other large communities, part of Baton Rouge, Lafayette, Lake Charles, um, and then many smaller areas as well in, in coastal Louisiana. But again, about 2 million folks. Uh, it's over half the population of the state of Louisiana. You're talking about you know, about six to 8,000 uh, square miles of land, depending on how you count it, what's land and what's not, what's water, right? Um, so it's a tremendous uh, land area, um, all of which, again, not only do people live and work in, uh, but it serves as that really important first line of defense, um, you know, as a hurricane or a tropical storm is approaching the Gulf Coast to help kind of dampen the, uh, those storm surges, uh, reduce the effect of those uh, those storms for the communities like New Orleans and Baton Rouge and Lafayette and so forth, and some of the smaller communities as well uh, along our coast. So, you know, Bill, you'd ask kind of how, how bad is the problem? And um, so over the last not quite 100 years or so, about 90 years, Louisiana's lost about 2,000 square miles of its land. Um, and so those are all primarily wetlands, uh, but but it's land. And that's roughly the size of the state of Delaware. And, you know, we often, when I'm talking to folks from other parts of the country, you know, ask them, what do you think this country would do if somebody came over here and took Delaware from us? Um, you know, it'd be a, it'd be a, uh, a sure and swift action uh, to, w- without a doubt. Um, and so based on what we predict the future to look like in terms of you know, uh, what the environment, what sea level might do, what, um, um, mm-hmm. you know, continued erosion and, and we are sinking in coastal Louisiana as well. Um, you know, we anticipate that if we don't do anything to sort of change that trajectory, we'd lose another 4,000 or so square miles of our coastal wetlands. So that's, that's most of our coast right there. Um, uh, the good news is we don't plan to do nothing about it, right? We've got a, we've got a plan in place. We've got a lot of good work that's gone on already. Uh, and I imagine we'll talk a little bit more about that, uh, in a few minutes. 
Absolutely. What? Well, okay. This brings up a good point because it. I heard after Katrina, people here, and it's callous and awful, but you know how people talk when they're just talking in their little groups. Well, there shouldn't be anything there anyway. It's too low and they're sinking. And I, what's yeah. actually caused this problem? Because, you know, New Orleans was built a long time ago and it was in pretty good shape for a long time. So obviously <laughs> some things changed. Yeah. What has happened that, that's causing this problem? Yeah. So the fundamental problem facing Louisiana is is a lack of sediment input. And that re- the cause of that really is, is how we've managed the Mississippi River. So um, many folks know if, if you don't, um, you know, we've, we've straightened the river in many cases. We've shortened its, uh, its, uh, its length by literally hundreds of miles. I don't know the exact figure, but we've built cutoffs in the river that's made it much shorter and quicker to, to get to the Gulf of Mexico. We've levied it so that when it floods annually, instead of the, those floods delivering sediment and freshwater nutrients to our coast, which again is what built coastal Louisiana in the first place, built much of um, much of the central part of the, the nation, really, if you go back millennia. Um, but certainly if you're going back, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, it um, it built all of coastal Louisiana. So we, we've levied the river. It no longer changes course and rebuilds different parts of the, the Gulf, you know, Gulf Coast, primarily in Louisiana. It's, it's straight jacketed, essentially. And so all of the benefits of that um, uh, the resources that the river carries now essentially are, are jetted off the, the edge of the continental shelf. And they, uh, those sediments, for example, end up in the deep water Gulf of Mexico. They're not really doing anybody any good there. Uh, we need to redirect those to release them, you know, through our coastal wetlands so that we can sustain, not only sustain what, uh, what we're building here at CPRA, many of the marshes and the barrier islands and so forth that we're building, but so that it can actually build its own, uh, coastal wetlands. So for lay people, you're, all that sediment comes down and it essentially builds land. It has historically, has has through all of its history of, of a big, huge river. And then it's not now. And so a lot of the work, if I put it in simple terms, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I sound ignorant here, but you, get, you need to put some of that sediment back out there. And some of that land, that sediment has tons of nutrients and it grows really productive and creates all this habitat. How, how, what are you doing to attack that? That's not, I think to a lot of people, you hear that and you're like, oh my gosh, how, how are we going to take, you know, thousands or millions of tons or whatever it is of sediment and try to push yeah. it back out there? Yeah. So, um, well, uh, again, as I kind of alluded to earlier in the, in the broadcast here, we, we are, uh, we've got a plan, right? We've got a plan in place. We've got a list of projects that we believe we need to implement um, that can give us kind of the most bang for our buck uh, in coastal Louisiana. And we're uh, we're ticking down that list. We're implementing those projects, and so they involve um, uh, two things primarily: dredging sediment. So either dredging sediment that's already in the river, moving it across the levees, and and building wetlands and, and ridges and so forth, and uh, the adjacent uh, estuaries and the adjacent uh, floodplain, uh, or dredging sediment from offshore uh, and pumping it onshore, basically again to to rebuild barrier islands and so forth. Um, and then the second really major tool that we've got uh, kind of in the toolbox is, again, the, the Mississippi and the Atchafalaya. I should mention, I haven't mentioned that yet, but the Atchafalaya River as well. And uh, all of the sediment that those rivers carry, you know, naturally, if you can um, put a spigot, if you will, into those rivers and get some of that water and the sediment that it carries back into the estuaries, it'll do it on its own. Um Everywhere we see the river connected to our coast. And so if you get down below the levees in the vicinity of Venice, I mentioned that just a moment ago, 
um, you see vibrant, healthy wetlands in those areas uh, at the mouth of the Atchafalaya River uh, and the Wax Lake Outlet, which are part of a spillway um, that that are part of the Mississippi River and Tributaries flood control system. Um, But you see land being built in in those areas. so anywhere we see the river connected with the coast, we see you know healthy, resilient wetlands that um, that are building, and we're not you know we're not losing them. Bren, what does that mechanically look like? I mean, a lot of people you know you hear dredging, and sometimes that's a dirty word. We've dredged a bunch of rivers in the West for gold mining historically. There's huge piles of cobble on the sides, and it's channelized and all these things. But dredging is necessary in this case. Tell us a little bit about that how, mechanically, how that works. Yeah, sure. So dredging is um, um, uh, it's a mechanical way of picking up sediment um, uh, from somewhere. Generally, again, it's either out of a lake or, um, uh, you know, bayou or something like that. We in Louisiana would prefer to dredge those uh, sediments from either offshore, kind of far offshore uh, or out of the Mississippi River, which, as we said right now, is disconnected from its estuary. So we're dredging sediment from outside of the the system, the coastal system, if you will, and pumping that back into the system um, to essentially increase elevations of water bottoms and and existing lower marshes um, so that um, marshes can can grow or healthier marshes can grow in those areas uh, and and then will last uh, last some time. So behind levees, you're getting it from like right behind levees in the river channel and then do you truck it? Do you pump it? Do you like Yeah. That? No. So you, you uh, have real a real basic uh, here. You got to start me from scratch. Yeah. Let me, let me, let me back up. So a, a dredge, uh, the dredges that we use basically are, are uh, it's a barge and it's got a big pump on it and it's got something that looks kind of like an egg beater at the end of that, uh, at the end of the pipe that, that goes into that pump. So uh, the egg beater is, is stirred up the sediment. And when we're talking sediment here, it's not, uh, we don't have rocks in coastal Louisiana, right? We're talking maybe the biggest grain size or sort of small particles of sand. So it's the sand, silts, and clays. It, it stirs that up. The pump sucks it up uh, and it's delivered through a pipeline to parts of our coast that need sediment. Um so there may be booster pumps and things like that involved. And so, you know, what you see kind of at the end of one of these sediment, dredge sediment pipelines is sort of something that looks about like chocolate milk kind of shooting out of the end of it. Um, it's water that's got a lot of sediment in it. It'll kind of pile up at the end of a, end of that pipe. Uh, generally heavy equipment bulldozers and, and uh, loaders and things like that are, are manipulating that, moving it around, trying to get it to a specific elevation that our engineers and our scientists say, hey, you need to meet this elevation to you know, have this kind of marsh in this location. Um, and so you'll f- sort of fill up an area uh, uh, at point A and then you'll move on to point B and kind of fill up the next until the, the whole area is done. So dredging, to some extent anyway, obviously it's a valuable tool, but can be used in places where you can't connect the river to the marsh? Yeah, yes, it can be used. It can really be used just about anywhere, um, but it's uh, obviously where you don't have the river as an option. Uh, dredging is really one of your, your, your primary options. The, the issue with it is, um, well, let me start off by saying one of the great things about it is it can get you benefits right away. Right. So you can have an area that's either a degraded marsh or open water and once was marsh. You can go in there with a dredge, fill it up, create a marsh and you've got it within you know a year or two or three. You'll have a marsh. But what you haven't done is affected kind of the fundamental issues that cause the loss in that location in the, in the first place. And so using the river not only can sustain those marshes that we're building via dredging, um, 
but it can also, uh, you know, flip again, kind of the fundamental issues that cause that loss in the first place uh, and get you in a, a position where you're gaining marshes instead of losing marshes. So what does that look like? Is that breaching these levees for short periods of time or you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm thinking about in the West again, sorry, but like, yeah. you know, we do these flushing flows in the Colorado river, right? Where we crank it up out of the lake bottom of Lake Powell to go through the grand Canyon to restore habitat for native fish. Because if you let, you know, if you keep that river so low and it never has those scouring flows, then the habitat, they're literally their spawning areas and everything go away. Can you yeah. make it somehow akin to that? Is it, I'm trying to picture what you're talking about. Yeah, so so along the lower Mississippi River and in the locations where we're talking about building these kinds of diversions, you've got uh, a Mississippi River levee. So you have the river, and on either side of it, there's a, a river levee to prevent, again, prevent that river flooding. But then what you'll have, and so you'll have a highway and maybe a community kind of adjacent to that river levee. And then on the backside of that highway or community, you'll have what we call here a back levee. Um, and so that would be a hurricane storm surge levy. So you've got a, a levy on the front side of you, preventing, hopefully preventing uh, the river from flooding you. You've got a levy behind you, uh, for example, preventing hopefully the Gulf of Mexico from flooding mm. you. And you're kind of wow. in, uh, particularly in Plaquemines Parish, you're in sort of a narrow strip between those two levees. And so the idea behind the Midbury Terry sediment diversion is to put a structure in the river levy, uh, a gated structure. So basically a, a gate, like a flume gate or something you might see out west be able to, uh, and a channel that leads from the river, um, you know, through that river levee, uh, and then the land between the two levees that I just mentioned, and then of course through the, the back levee as well. And then um, you can open that gate uh, or you can shut that gate, whatever the case may be. When you open it, obviously, if the river's high and carrying sediment, it'll transport all of that basically for you. It's a gravity driven uh, system. It'll transport that sediment, that fresh water uh, to the coastal wetlands that, that need it. And really all of that is to follow kind of just the natural cycle um, of the, uh, the seasons in, in the Mississippi Valley, right? We know that in the spring, the river's high. It's carrying a lot of sediment, typically uh, kind of late winter and spring. And late winter, it starts to come up. It's generally highest. Uh, um, it's most often in about the May time frame. And then as you get into late summer and in the fall, it's typically at its, at its lowest. So what we would intend to do, um, again, with this diversion project would be to sort of mimic that natural cycle of the spring flood, uh, low water in the late fall and early winter, um, and, um, um, you know, kind of reestablish that, that flood cycle, um, you know, non-flood cycle that, again, uh, all of the, the, the fish and the wildlife and the, and the uh, plants and so forth evolved uh, to, to be able to live with and adjust to here in coastal Louisiana. Howdy, listeners. For more great content, check out NWF Outdoors social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Connect with us. We want to hear from you. Send us your ideas for podcast guests and questions in the comments. And for even more excellent content, here's a message from our partner podcast. Hey, everyone. This is Carly Kutnick from Artemis Sportswomen. We know you love awesome stories of hunting, fishing, and conservation. So head on over to the Artemis podcast where you'll meet adventurous, accomplished women who are redefining conservation through their lives in the field and on the water. Filled with humor, audacity, empathy, and intelligence, Artemis brings you new voices and introduces you to women from all walks of the sporting community. Find Artemis wherever you get your podcasts. Bryn, we talk in Louisiana a lot about crevasses, which 
some have been man-made, some have just where a levee kind of blows out in a spot and it's left alone. And we right now Neptune Pass uh, going on down there. Can you talk a little bit about those and then the difference between that and a sediment diversion? And what I'm thinking is to understand why we can't just tear out levees, sure. carte blanche, and, and let things roll. Sure. So um, a crevasse is, uh, the, the key difference between a, a sediment diversion and a crevasse is that a crevasse is uncontrolled. So I mentioned in a sediment diversion, we'd have a gated structure that you can open and close and control the amount of flow. There are some places in the very, very low reaches of the river, kind of below where you've got um, either those back levees that I mentioned or river levees, um, where we are able to um, basically just punch a hole in what would be the natural levee or kind of the high bank adjacent to either the Mississippi River, Passalute, or some of the various passes around the lower river. Um, and again, as I mentioned earlier, wherever we do that, we see great things happening. There's been some wonderful Ducks Unlimited projects, some state projects, some U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service projects that have created uh, some tremendous, particularly waterfowl habitat, but waterfowl and fish habitat uh, south of Venice adjacent to the river. Um, just by, by building those crevasses. So, uh, again, the big difference between a sediment diversion and a crevasse is that they both divert sediment, but a sediment diversion uh, is controlled. You threw me for another loop there, Bill. In the West, and we think of crevasses and glaciers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Brent, you know, Aaron and I always have this redneck mountain hippie vibe where he's got the Western stuff, I've got the Eastern stuff, and a lot of the same words, yet they're totally different. So it's always <laughs> fun to get into these conversations. And, and I want to talk about that a little bit because, you know, here in the South, sometimes we get in some bad spots on lists and that sort of thing. Our states aren't always at the top where we'd like them to be. But Louisiana has something special. And it was mentioned earlier that no place else has, the Coastal Master Plan. And, and let's talk just a little bit more about that and how that comes together, how it's redone and and – how brilliant that thing really is because no place has it. Yeah. Well, so our, our coastal master plan is I'm going to boil it down to, to the very two, two very simple things. It's much more complicated than this, but it, it's a way to make really hard decisions about what we think we need to do along our coast. So we don't have all the money we need to do everything. We don't have all the sediment to, we need to rebuild all of our coastal wetlands, bare islands, and so forth. We don't have all the freshwater nutrients. So you've got this situation where we've got limited resources to try to accomplish a goal, right, which is to have a sustainable coastal Louisiana for all the reasons we've already talked about. And um, and so how do you make those, those hard decisions? I mean, you've got to say we're, we're not going to do some things for some people that we think probably deserve it or some resources that probably deserve it. And so the master plan is a, is a technically sound kind of scientifically and, and you know, uh, state of the art engineering and so forth process by which we go through making those tough decisions. And then at the end of the day, it's a list of those projects and those priorities that we want to invest in to try to do the most good for the most people across coastal Louisiana. Um, again, it's much, much more complicated than that. We look at, you know, various uh, scenarios in terms of what the future might be in coastal Louisiana. We select projects, you know, over those scenarios to try to hedge our bet and make sure we're successful. We're implementing the projects that have the, you know, the most um, um, probability of success early on in the process. And But the nice thing about the master plan is that we update it every six years now. So we're on our fourth iteration. We just passed um, our last plan through the legislature uh, this year, just this summer. Um, and we'll have a, another one out in six years. And the, the benefit that that 
plan we'll have over this one is that it'll have six years worth of, of, of more experience built into it, right? We'll have a better idea, hopefully, of what the future may hold. We will have implemented many more projects, including the Mid-Baritary Sediment Diversion Project, and all of the lessons associated with, with doing those things can be built into the next plan. That's good stuff. And, and that ability to change, I, I guess y'all are constantly even monitoring things like sea level rise and how that impacts your work. Um, and I'm sure y'all are seeing with, with, you know, climate change, you're having to adjust things as you go. Is that right? We, we are. We are. So, um, again, you know, we've talked about Louisiana's coast is, is sort of sinking. So the mud's compacting and sinking a bit. Um, uh, you know, sea levels are, are, are rising a bit and they're predicted to do more so more of that, you know, into the future. Um, hurricanes are, are more frequent and are more intense. Um, and so all of those things are, are factored into our plans and kind of the way we evaluate projects and whether or not we think they'll be successful, um, you know, into the future. Bill, can we talk about the mid Terry specifically? Because that's what yeah. that, that's what gets again me just totally ignorant to what's going on down there. It just gets me so excited when I hear things about maybe the largest restoration project ever in the country, you know, and then and then as we've talked about the values there. Can you maybe just unpack that one kind of what exactly is it supposed to do? What's the hopes, dreams, you know, why? I sure can. Are you asking me or Bill? I read these, you know, 300 word news clip type of things. And boy, I know there's a lot more to it than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll just talk specifically about the, the portion of the Louisiana's coast that the Mid-Baritary Sediment Diversion um, really is designed to address. And that's the Baritaria Basin. So that's kind of the, the pie shape or wedge shape basin that's just due south of the city of New Orleans. It's on the west bank of the Mississippi River. Uh, so it's it's across the river from New Orleans, but it's due south of it, essentially, if you're looking at a map uh, of Louisiana, um, kind of the underside of the toe of the boot, if you will. <laughs> um so for, for, you know, for a hundred years, hundred years or hundreds of years, really, since we began levying the Mississippi River, uh, again, all of the benefits of those spring floods and the sediment and the freshwater and everything that it has brought to the Baratari Basin, um, that's been cut off. That's been stopped. Um, and so for a, a hundred years, since really the flood of 1927, um, that estuary has been at a state of decay. Um, because the river was no longer sustaining the coastal wetlands there, because the barrier islands weren't receiving any new sediment from the Mississippi River, uh, they've begun to shrunk. The marshes have begun to erode and sink. And um, where you, again, where you once had um, thousands of acres of coastal wetlands, you've got, you know, thousands of acres minus X. I don't know exactly what that number is, but a large portion of the 2,000 square miles of coastal wetlands that have been lost have been lost in the Barataria Basin. And so, as those wetlands have been lost, as you might imagine, the, the Gulf of Mexico has began to sort of creep northward. Um, and so you've got more uh, tidal influence. You've got, you've got less land, so you've got more volume of water that's got to move in and out, essentially. That means more salt water is moving inland. Um, and you've got places like Manila Village and Basa Basa and Lake Grande Kai and, and that are not on the map anymore. They're communities that were once there. Uh, Manila Village had a, a huge Filipino uh, community there, for example, that was uh, primarily fishermen and, and uh, a shrimp drying platforms there. That's not there anymore. And that's not because, uh, you know, of a sediment diversion. That's because of the deterioration uh, of that basin. And so as the basin has been deteriorating, um, 
where folks uh, are able to harvest shrimp, where they're able to harvest oysters, where they're able to harvest, you know, redfish and speckled trout and so forth. Those areas have moved. And so, you know, we hear often in communities, we talk to people who say, you know, our grandfathers caught, um, I'm going to say sackalay. This is what we call them in Louisiana. Most folks probably know them as either white perch or a crappie, but, uh, it, you know, at a point at this location, um, my grandfather again caught sackalay there and uh, now we're catching, you know, speckled trout or we can't catch anything for that matter there. Wow. And so the idea behind reconnecting the river again with that Barataria basin is to sort of hit reset on the, on the estuary uh, as the Gulf has sort of overtaken the, the Delta, if you will, and kind of moved and prograded uh, northward up into the basin, the mid Barataria sediment origin will help to kind of reset that, reset that back to something that's uh, more similar to what our, you know, our grandfathers and, and grandmothers and uh, great grandfathers and great grandmothers probably experienced within the, within that basin. Say that name again, Sac- Sacrolet. How do you say that? What word is that? Sacrolet. Sacrolet. Where's yes. that from? Just a local term? It's, uh, you know, it's got, it's, uh, well, you may not know being out West, but it's got very white meat. The, it's a fish that's got very, very white flesh and the, it means a uh, bag of milk, essentially. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know what the translation was, but I knew it's a crappie. What, what <laughs> Spanish? Is that Spanish? What language is that? Uh, French. French. Okay. French. Yep. And you're never 100% sure in Louisiana, so it's a fair question. <laughs> Think about cafe au lait, right? That's coffee coffee and milk, sac au lait, milk. bag of oh, milk. Oh, so is it two words then, or is it just one? It's, it's three words. Okay, uh, I get it now. Yeah, I thought it was just one word, and that, that helps. <laughs> well, okay, now back to cynical stuff or, or heavy stuff, because the rest this has been fun to talk about. Where's the money coming from? I mean, we talked about a three billion dollar project. Yeah, yeah. And so that's um, that's a, that's a hefty price tag. But nobody can deny that. Um, but the funds for this project, and really the funds for a, a lot of Louisiana's coastal program, um, are the result of what was a tremendous tragedy. Eleven people lost their lives. Uh, tremendous impact, not just in coastal Louisiana, but across the Gulf Coast. It was the the BP uh, Deepwater Horizon oil spill. So. Uh, as a result of the settlement that was reached, I believe in 2016, uh, as as part of the the um, um, you know the ongoing uh, negotiations and and again the, ultimately the settlement uh, associated with that spill, about little about seven and a half billion dollars um, is coming to coastal Louisiana uh, to implement many many projects uh, across the coast. And so while this is a big one and then certainly the biggest ticket item uh, kind of on that list, there have been. Uh, you know, dozens of other projects that either have been implemented or are being implemented um, right now with those funds. I think, too, that that number sounds big, but, you know, money well spent in a lot of ways, right? You're talking the economic activity, the health and vitality of, I mean, we talked about the the commerce, we've talked about the fishing. I mean, there's there's so much there. I, <laughs> I think all of us might agree that uh, we see some things we'd rather not see money spent on. This is one I, I think I don't mind. <laughs> well, yeah, I would I would certainly agree with that. Um, and, and again, keep in mind that this is, um, you know, once you make your initial investment in a project like this, of course, there's some maintenance that needs to go on over, over you know, a period of time. But uh, it's not like a dredging project where you, you might dredge and then 20 years later, you've got to come back and re-dredge and basically rebuild the exact same thing. Uh, this is a, a project that will keep on giving long after the initial investment is made uh, using the natural power of the Mississippi River. Well, and the, the protection 
these projects offer to infrastructure and economy and people, aside from what we care about, the hunting and fishing, the protection it offers, I mean, that's, I don't know even how to quantify it because it, that goes on forever as well. It's difficult to quantify. Folks have said for, you know, every mile or two miles or so of coastal wetlands you have um, in front of you, you could knock down, you know, that, that those wetlands will knock down a storm surge by a foot or so. And those are, to be blunt, kind of anecdotal estimates. But uh, but I, what I will say and what I have said many times and will continue to say that if a, if a storm is approaching coastal Louisiana, the more land, the more coastal wetlands I have between me and it, the better off I feel. Um, and so, yes, the, the, the wetlands that the Midbury Terrace Sediment Diversion will build and the others that we're rebuilding in our coastal program, uh, we, we like to say they protect the protection, right? So those wetlands and forests and marshes and so forth that you have in front of levees and flood walls and floodgates uh, help to knock down surges and winds that can impact those uh, protection systems. I'm glad you said that because we spent a lot of time talking about natural infrastructure and it's kind of in this you know, <laughs> this way that's hard to pin down, but that is natural infrastructure, right? And whether it be, you know, restoring a forest on a mountainside, and then that slows the the runoff from going into the river too much, yeah. and flooding the downstream culverts or towns or whatever, or, you know, there, there's lots of things like that. Putting meanders back, if you put a meander back in the Mississippi River, even something that large, not only would when the high waters come up, fill those wetlands in, create habitat for ducks and fish and all that stuff. But also if that there's tons of volume coming down, it has a place to kind of slow down and infiltrate the sediment and refill groundwater. There's so many benefits to it. I'm really, we're starting to see a little bit of a shift to where now we're including natural infrastructure when we talk about infrastructure and projects that are like this, that used to just be called restoration. Now they were calling those infrastructure projects, which is I think a huge paradigm shift that, we really needed to have because, you know, it finally expresses the value of some of these natural ecosystems that are valuable to all of us for many reasons. Yeah, sorry, no, I have a rant there. <laughs> no, it's it's exactly what I was getting at, and really was the impetus behind uh, the 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 uh, creation of CPRA. Um, again, after that hurricane season of two thousand and five, where had Katrina and, and Rita hit coastal Louisiana. Um, I think folks really woke up to the fact that we're losing our coastal landscape and the less of that landscape we have, the more, more vulnerable our communities are and we've got to do something about it. Yeah. Let's talk about the sporting community's involvement in all of this. Uh, you know, I know there's, there's a heavy, <laughs> a heavy community of waterfowl hunters and, and, and coastal anglers and so on and bass fishermen, all kinds of down there. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how sporting NGOs and just the average Joe or Jane, you know, hunter fisher would, would be involved in this? Yeah, absolutely. We, we um, you know, directly partner with some of those organizations. Uh, Ducks Unlimited was mentioned a couple of times already, um, and they do some, some great restoration work across the coast, and we're able to partner with them um, to, to help them, you know, apply for some of the grants that help fund some of that work. Um, the Coastal Conservation Association is another uh, fishing uh, specific, of course, conservation organization that we work uh, pretty closely with and uh, actually exploring some ways to maybe um, um, utilize some restoration features, some natural reefs and so forth that would not just not only benefit kind of restoring the ecosystem, but also, uh, you know, coastal anglers. Um, and many others we work with, of course, uh, um, you know, you guys, <laughs> um, obviously, and um, uh, mention, Ottoman yeah. Society uh, and, and many others. 
Uh, let's throw TRCP in there too, since uh, yeah. C Mac was on the boat when we went fishing last. That's spring, right. So. I, I am remiss for not mentioning TRCP, <laughs> but uh, but that's right. Yeah, no, we've got a, a really strong co- coalition of, of partners. Uh, you know, most of whom are either uh, you know by for or, or of uh, uh, sportsmen and, and sportswomen across the coast, and um, you know. I hate to keep saying Louisiana is unique, but I, but I do think in some ways, b- because the folks that live along Louisiana's coast, um, uh, I mean, most of us are here because of because of the natural resources that are here, um, and that started with our again our fathers and, and and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers and so forth that uh, many times made their living off our coast. Right? They were either fisher fishers or uh, trappers or, or or you name it. Um, and of course, as time has has moved on, so have economies and the way people make livings. But there's still a very close. Uh, for, for many folks in coastal Louisiana, very close tie to our coast from uh, um, just a, a visceral kind of family, family, excuse me, uh, tie, uh, because it goes back to when our ancestors first got here. Well, I, okay, I'm going to ask you, this one may be a little more difficult, but what what's the current outlook and what can sportsmen do to help? Um, not just in Louisiana, but elsewhere, if there's anything folks can do to pitch in. You know, I think that um, I think the outlook is good. Uh, I really do. I'm, I'm more confident today um, than I was last year, or the year before that, or even the year before that, that we can accomplish our goals here in coastal Louisiana. We've got kind of a the trifecta of, of I think what you need uh, to be successful in a program like this. We've got the the science to back it up, right? We've got our plan. We've got the political will uh, to implement that plan. And we've also uh, been fortunate enough to to be able be able to, um, to have the funding. To I mean, it takes money to do all of this stuff. And so those three things have been just immensely important. But I I think the most one of the most important things folks can do uh, across the country is uh, just learn and understand why coastal Louisiana is important to uh, again an individual in North Dakota or upstate New York for that matter um, or the, the the you know western coast of the United States. Uh, for lots of different reasons, um, if you're interested in paying, um, uh, you know, having having a, a reasonable bill when you pump gas into your car, coastal Louisiana should be important to you. If you like to hunt ducks somewhere, you know, in the Central or, or Mississippi Valley Flyway, coastal Louisiana should be important to you. If you uh, are trying to get again soybeans to market uh, or interested in commodities and whatnot, if you're invested in those markets, then the Mississippi River and coastal Louisiana should be important to you. Um, and so really, I think the, these sportsmen's groups and, and organizations uh, have such a powerful advocacy role, uh, not just uh, locally, but obviously in Washington, D.C., where where the you know the rubber really hits the road. That's, uh, um, that's really one of the best ways I think folks can get involved in this issue. I think you may be understating it a little, too, because I think what, the more I learn about it, this is the, this delta, this river it's the gem. Oh, it's, it's like one of the crown jewels of our country. Um, and, and, and just that resource and what it does for us in so many ways, you know, it, it's, I've learned a lot of it from Bill and our friends at Mississippi Wildlife Federation, Louisiana Wildlife Federation. And man, it is a spectacular place and something that we just, we can't afford to lose it. You know, we can't afford to lose it on our watch, especially. Um, we would, that would be a, that would be a terrible thing to pass down to our kids. So just commend you that you're, you're diving in and doing the tough work that it takes. 
Well, we couldn't agree with you more and certainly appreciate that. It's a special place. All right. Well, let, while we're talking sports, and let's get back to what got us all three here in the first place. <laughs> and let's talk a little bit about hunting and fishing as we get towards the end. So I, I want to ask who your favorite hunting and fishing partners are. Oh, it's my family. Who do you love to fish with most? Yeah, it's my, it's my family. My, I have two boys, uh, my father and, and my two sons. Absolutely, it would, it would be them. But I, there's a there's a large community. If anybody uh, you know is ready to go and says, "Hey, I got a spot in the boat," uh, you know, I'm I'm game. So <laughs> that's what I like to hear. Now, where are your favorite spots? And that's what I want to know. He's <laughs> like well, he's going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't give you GPS coordinates, but I'm, I'm happy to tell you. No, I, I you know. Venice is just spectacular. Uh, Venice, Louisiana is just uh, just amazing. It's got everything you could possibly want. I've um, you know good friends with folks that that'll tell you you can catch a, a brim or a bluegill in the morning and a literally a blue mar- marlin in the afternoon, all out of the same same base. Um, and and uh, you know the same goes in terms of just the tremendous resource it is for waterfowl and so forth. It's just a, it's a crazy place. It's something else. Um, one of my first trips there was during teal season, and we we had a great teal hunt. Um, we then caught a limit of redfish, and then caught a limit of bass. Right, at, I mean back to back to back. And I thought, man, this this is all right. I'm gonna have to do this a few more times, <laughs> and have many times since then. Yeah, it, it, it's a place you need to go, Aaron. That's for I know. Sure. I you said Ryan Lambert's name earlier. We've had him. We worked with him on some different things too, and he's always talking about his his spot down there, right there. You know, I think it's right by Venice. He is just barely north of Venice. Yeah, yeah, same, same, very, very much the same sort of habitat. And uh, yeah, I got to uh, get over there. That sounds yeah. amazing. It's it's nice. You absolutely do. Now, I, I had a question that came to me when, when I asked everyone in our coalition, you know, hey, do y'all have any questions for Bren? And and one person, and you'll know who she is, but she said, you got to ask him about the green pickle. <laughs> the pickle, absolutely. So that's my old boat. Um, unfortunately, it uh, gave up the ghost in May. Uh <laughs> So that, uh, the pickles are about a, a 14 foot, uh, bateau or, or John boat and a little sort of panfish special that I've had for almost 20 years now. It was actually my father-in-law's boat. So I guess I inherited it and, uh, it was just a, a good all around, uh, uh, boat, not very big. So certainly not, uh, something you would, you would go to a place like Venice in, but uh, fish in other parts of, of the coast and around Louisiana, just a, a great, uh, great little boat. So I mentioned I was in Alabama this weekend. I actually retired it to my, my brother-in-law's place. He's got a lake on, on his farm that, uh, doesn't require an outboard. So trolling motors on it and it's, uh, it's living a good life up there and I'll be able to visit it on occasion. That's on the <laughs> finer side of retirement. I thought you might say you retired in an in a different way no 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 still got a few miles left on her <laughs> good well brent man so thank you so much for your time today and, and and telling us about your work and just and you're doing yeoman's work down there just so important and thank you so much but let, let's give you a chance you want to leave us with anything take home message wise words you, you get the floor here to just kind of sound off right as we let you go here <laughs> well i think you know uh, Louisiana's coast has has changed for thousands of years. And and I think the one thing I want folks really to understand as we leave is that, you know, we've talked about why it's so important, all the resources, whatnot it supports. But um, but the coast of tomorrow is not going to be the coast of today uh, in terms of the landscape. We can't we can't 
sort of lock this place in, in uh, you know, in a point in time and say we're going to maintain everything that's here today. But what we can do is, is although we'll have a different footprint in the future, it's going to look a little different. Um, some of that's because of some of the things we're doing. Some of that's just because some of the, um, you know, the, the natural things that have been going on along our coast are going to continue to happen over the next, you know, thousands of years. But uh, while the coast of tomorrow is not going to be the same as the coast of today, we can have a sustainable coastal productive uh, coastal Louisiana, sustainable productive coastal Louisiana that can help provide uh, all of the things that we've talked about and, and um, um, that it's providing today into the future. So uh, I am confident. Um, I'm optimistic about coastal Louisiana. Uh, we're not going anywhere. Um, and I think we're going to have a, you know, a future that while it might not be the exact uh, situation we're in today is, is bright and something that uh, is productive and sustainable into the future. Well said. Thank you, Bill. This is this is your work. You're one of our huge in, internal players in this this kind of work. Let's let's give you a chance to sound off, and then we'll wrap it up. Well, I, I'll hit it real fast, and I think we're about to have a new number probably come out because it happens every few years. But the rate of loss in coastal Louisiana right now is a football field every hundred minutes. Is that still correct, Brent? Yeah, okay. it is. That's amazing. I mean. Roughly in the time we've talked, you would have lost about a football field. I mean, obviously, it goes up and down over the course of months based on weather, tides, and everything else. But that's incredible. And it's they're slowly reversing it. They're work, folks like Brent are working hard to make that happen. And anything you can do where you live, let, let your congressmen, senators, on, let them know you support coastal Louisiana, just as we do with other you know, conservation issues around the country. There's, there's no limit on how many times you can check in and let your folks know you support something. Wise words, Bill. As we say, you cannot have this uh, privilege that we all have without the obligation of taking care of it. So, Bren, thank you so much. Keep doing the good work. Say hi to us once in a while. Hopefully I'll, I'll make it down there and we can get on a boat together someday and, and catch all those fish and shoot some ducks and all that good stuff you're talking about. So thank you so much. Keep, keep doing the good work and be well. That'd be fantastic. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. For more great content, check out NWF Outdoors social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Connect with us. We want to hear from you. Send us your ideas for podcast guests and questions in the comments. We are NWF Outdoors. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, a mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.